Are we looking in the wrong place to improve the effectiveness of medical care delivery? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickern, and joining me today is Dr. Norton Hadler, Professor of Medicine and Microbiology Immunology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, an attending rheumatologist at the University of North Carolina Hospital, and the author of the recently published book, Worried Sick, A Prescription for Health in an Overtreated America. Thank you, Dr. Hadler, for joining us today. Thank you, Maury. It's a pleasure to be here. To begin with, what are the principal themes that you expound in this new book of yours? The whole set of arguments are based on several principles that we don't talk enough about in clinical medicine. One is the concept of medicalization. That's where we take life's predicaments, label of the disease, and design intervention. Medicalization is a scourge in America. The second theme is the difference between disease-specific mortality and all-cause mortality. Most of us don't hear about the epidemiology of all-cause mortality. It's called, in our country, social epidemiology. In Britain, it's called life course epidemiology. And it's a notion that I came up with as a medical student when I wrote the first of my laws of therapeutic dynamics, which is the death rate is one per person. I actually published that 25 years ago, along with three other laws. If the death rate is one per person, I'm going to die. I'm not so sure I care what kills me as much as I care when. And if I have some handle on human life expectancy, and in the book I talk at great length about what we know about species expectancy, let's say 85 years of age, then I don't really care how many diseases I have on my 85th birthday. I care um, what the trip was like, care a little bit about what the passage will be like, but I care less which of my diseases turns out to be the grim reaper. The implications of this shift in epidemiologic mindset are enormous and very dramatic. For example, if you take the 15-year-old birth cohort today and you remove every single breast, prostate, and colon, you will do nothing for the longevity of that cohort. You will spare a few outliers' death before their time, but you will do nothing because most people die with these diseases and not from them. That changes the entire way we look at everything we do in medicine that's designed to save us death from a particular process when we need to look at whether or not the quality of life and its longevity are compromised. I should point out that the major influences on longevity are not directly in our clinical purview. About 80% of your mortal hazard lives with questions like, are you comfortable in your socioeconomic status and do you like your job? And things like what's your serum cholesterol turns out to be relatively trivial. So the second issue is in life course epidemiology. The first issue was in medicalization. And the third theme is what I call type 2 medical malpractice. Type 2 medical malpractice is doing the unnecessary, even if you do it very well. Type 1 is doing the necessary poorly. And I will argue in this book with lots of illustrations that a lot of what we do, particularly the high-ticket items, have been thoroughly studied, and the benefits are either non-existent or trivial and really shouldn't be done anymore. In fact, remodel healthcare in this country based on effectiveness and come up with 
a far more rational discussion than anything we're hearing in the current climate. So those are three of the major themes. They have important epidemiologic ramifications, some of which is sort of a rethinking of epidemiology. We have taken epidemiology beyond the reasonable. When we ask of our data sets, questions relate to very tiny effects in outcome in a very heterogeneous population. It's the reason why this year if you feed your family margarine, you're a criminal, and last year if you fed them butter, you were a criminal. It's because there's no way we can really measure in a population, whether or not butter or margarine, in all the other exposures and in all of the social epidemiology and in all of the other risk factors, anything important for butter versus margarine or any other such advice. So those are the four principal themes of the book, and I use very definite examples and discrete examples and lengthy discussions to illustrate them all throughout the book. Your book mentions you want leaving to be gentle and the legacy to be meaningful. And I was struck by that. And it doesn't mean that you're against all types of intervention, but certainly you point towards the socioeconomic factors of trying to make jobs more meaningful and rewarding as being something that may be where we should be putting our money as opposed to high-tech medicine. How do you go about making jobs meaningful and rewarding? My research career is mainly focused on workplace health and safety issues, so we've been very active in understanding and dissecting the influence of words like job security and meritocracy. And when I list the defined health hazards in a resource advantage world, one of the most dramatic health hazards we don't even talk about. It's up there with HIV exposure and the war in Iraq, and then someplace later on comes this terrible health event called downsizing. It may do wonders for the stock, but it does horrors to the workforce. And there are a number of natural experiments where large workforces have been followed through a downsizing event and their health goes to hell in a handbasket and they start dying. This is not a trivial event. So what we need to do, it's not like we need to guarantee incomes. I'm not sure that would work, although if we had time, I'd take you through some of the experiments that were done in the 70s along those lines. But what we have to do is have a national discussion so that we have something called human capital, that we are actually valued members of our community, and any community that disavows and disenfranchises people not only makes their lives miserable, but stratifies and increases health care expenses. This is the debate we need to have and not whether or not we want to screen for hemoglobin A1C in all of our workforce and in all of our schools because I can tell you that treating hemoglobin A1C does nothing for people, and I'm not sure identifying it does anything for people either except to label them. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and with me today is Dr. Norton Hadler, professor of medicine at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and we're discussing his new book, Worried Sick, A Prescription for Health in an Overtreated America. How does the patient enter into this discourse? Should he be a partner? Certainly, my experience is that my patients are on the Internet around the clock and come in with reams of material about what they should have done. How can we turn the patient into a partner in their health care? Not just the patient, but the person who's choosing to be a patient. And the answer is yes, absolutely. The person 
and the patient needs to be asked to be proactive about their questioning. And our job as physicians is to offer them a port in the storm that has unbiased, unfettered notions of wisdom and certainty. That takes time and trust. And part of the reason we need to change the national debate is no one is willing to say that time and trust are valuable parts of health care. What we're willing to say is that everybody needs arthroscopy and a stent, both of which are useless. They are ineffective. We have all experienced this rush to see more and more patients being on the treadmill just because of the payment system that is driving healthcare now. And no one seems to be aware of the value of cognitive skills that we bring to it, which, of course, take time. And I think also part of this is, and I'd like your opinion, do you think patients are losing trust in their caregivers? They see in the media that doctors are looking for ways to augment their revenue stream. And are they therefore taking things in their own hands by demanding a certain kind of care? People who are ill have reflexive need to trust. That's very hard for them not to do. I think what's happening in our country for good reason is that the people have less and less confidence in our profession, which is really sad because our profession is populated by an extraordinarily fine group of practitioners who are constrained in their ethical behavior by an institution of medicine that is ethically bankrupt. And that's our issue. Our issue is that this quality agenda that we're all being fed daily is missing the point. Quality, of course, makes sense. But if what we're doing, being forced to do, rewarded to do, and paid to do doesn't work, I don't care how well you do it. You don't need to do it. So we need to have a sea change in the institution of medicine. I actually, in Worried Sick, lead up to Chapter 14, which is a relatively easy-to-read model of reform that I've spent a decade on, that I've modeled mathematically, that is so extraordinarily simple and rational. We almost had one state willing to enact it for their uninsured workforce, but it is running smack into the stakeholders. Seventeen percent of the GDP is committed to the status quo. And I can assure you that the so-called providers are not part of the stakeholder core. So you talk about in the book taking on bureaucracy, having a discourse, and you mentioned that it's like teaching a pig to sing. It's a waste of time, and the pig doesn't like it. So where do we go for an answer now? Because of my research and, and a number of other reasons, I have access to legislatures and corporate leaders and insurance executives, and nothing's going to happen there. Nothing will happen until we start having an out loud national debate where people start to say, my problem is not that I can't afford the stent. My problem is that nobody told me I didn't need it. Once you start doing that, I can, in a rational sense, bring what I call disease insurance down well under $750 per person per year. Disease insurance, things that we need to do to people because it really benefits them, is not that expensive. It's this tremendous waste of money for things that don't benefit people. As we talk today, we begin to realize that all of us in the office who can write a prescription for an MRI and it takes us two minutes, and then it may also take us 30 minutes with that patient to tell them why they don't need it, 
we have to begin to open this discourse so that our patients understand when we tell them they don't need a particular test, that there is evidence-based research to substantiate it. I want to thank Dr. Norton Hadler, who has been our guest today. He's professor of medicine at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and he is the recent author of Worried Sick, A Prescription for Health in an Overtreated America. This audience should look at this book. It is filled with marvelous material and references to help us practice, I think, a better brand of medicine, and certainly probably, as a side effect, a less expensive brand of medicine. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MDXM157. Thank you for listening.